And so I invite you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 43. Uh, and this morning I'm going to read just two verses. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep you. They will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that the words of this sermon might be pleasing and acceptable to you. Uh, bless this message, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you just for a moment to do a little thought experiment with me. If you were to think to yourself, over the last 100 years, what have been the most world-changing discoveries? What might you put down on such a list? Uh, you can imagine that there are all sorts of different things that might come to people's minds. Uh, some of you may have a phone in your pocket uh, that has more computing power uh, than the Apollo spacecraft. It's pretty amazing how telecommunications have advanced so quickly. Uh, I'm kind of reminded of what Henry David Thoreau said in the mid-19th century when the telegraph wire was developed. He said, now San Francisco can talk to Connecticut. He said, but we don't know if they'll have anything to say to each other. Telecommunication has given us a lot of computing power and a lot of ability to connect, but do we have anything to say? Perhaps when you're making a list of the most significant uh, developments of the last hundred years, maybe what comes to mind is uh, an engine. Jet engines are able to make the world such a closer place. Travel, not only travel, but logistics. It's a reason why we have products that are uh, far more affordable today because things that are, are built around the world can be at our doorstep. Uh, when we decided to order our Sunday school material for the upcoming uh, uh, classes that are about to resume, we put the order in one day and the material was here the next. There's a development of uh, jets and airplanes and other machinery that are significant. Would any of you on that list have put the development of sulfa drugs? Uh, I suspect you might not have thought to do that. The sulfa drugs were developed in the 1930s and it was the first development of synthetic antibiotics. Antibiotics that could be developed in the lab. And every single one of us has at some point taken them. You know, for children today, thankfully, in most cases, strep throat is something that is mildly uncomfortable. Uh, sometimes someone might be hospitalized from strep throat, but fairly rarely. And yet, before sulfa drugs were developed, strep throat was one of the main killers of children. 
There are all sorts of infections. Uh, and some of you are old enough perhaps to remember parents or grandparents talking about how what is today something that we don't recognize as being lethal at all was frequently quite lethal. There are lots of developments and specifically with those drug developments, the reason that the researchers were able to discover uh, how to treat these infections was because of other advances that enabled them to understand how our immune system responds. And as they understood how our immune system responds, they were able to develop ways of manipulating that response to be more successful. Well, the reason I begin with that story is a reminder that just because we can't see something, just because we don't know how something is working, doesn't mean that we're not being affected. And it also is a reminder that knowledge is significant. Understanding what is happening around us, in us, and to us is important. And it's important because our response matters. I know that uh, May snow showers bring June flowers perhaps this year. Uh, it's a pretty cold end of May today. Uh, some of you, I suspect, have already planted some tomato plants. We recognize that attending to a potato plant uh, is far, uh, potato, a tomato plant, potato too, right, Scott? <laughs> Requires a little more attention than kudzu. Right? You don't have to do any work for kudzu to multiply and grow all around. And in a similar way, in your life, in my life, it does not take any effort for vice to grow and multiply and spread all through our life. But virtue requires cultivation. And that's what we've been looking at, the virtues, for the last couple of weeks, and we'll continue for a few more weeks. I've been looking at the prophet Isaiah. As I've mentioned the last couple of Sundays, the book of Isaiah, 66 chapters, it's somewhat unwieldy because of its size. And so there are different ways that you can teach Isaiah. And the way I've selected to teach that is to take these seven themes and look at how we find in God's message to the people of Israel a word that speaks to these aspects of our life. Wisdom. Justice. Now look with me today, 43, the passage begins, but now this is what the Lord says, who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. The virtue I want to bring your attention to today is the virtue that is necessary to persist, to hear this admonition, right? fear not. The virtue is courage. Uh, now, you might think to yourself, uh, who sets out to be cowardly? Uh, we tend not to want to do that. Uh, there are some directions that we might be given that are a little easier to follow than others. <clears throat> so, for example, uh, when we're told, don't touch the stove, we know exactly what that means or don't turn left at this intersection. We understand very specifically what we're supposed to do. But when you're told not to fear, it might feel like that's something beyond your control. 
Like, how do I control how I feel? Uh, well, emotions are present. Fear is present. But what this admonition uh, is about is to not let our emotion of fear be an impediment to our following what God is calling us to do. I like sports documentaries. Uh, Larry Bird, for those of you who remember that period of history in the NBA, the famous battles between Bird and Magic. One of the interesting things about Larry Bird, especially in comparison to his kind of arch rival, is how shy Larry Bird was. Uh, as a professional athlete, he'd overcome, as shy as he was, he'd overcome uh, an even greater shyness. Uh, part of what made Larry Bird such a successful basketball player was his perseverance, his kind of tenacity in the face of adversity, how hard and determined he was. Uh, but all of those qualities can be directed in a very destructive way. As a child, as a teenager, he took an F in English class, not because he didn't understand the work, but because he absolutely refused to stand up before his class and read the report that was the basis of the assignment. His fear of public speaking, his fear of being in front of others, was so strong that he preferred to fail the class. Maybe you can relate to such fears. Fears that are absolutely paralyzing. Well, this passage is a call to not let fear paralyze you from following what God has called you to do. Have you heard of the story of Romance of the Rose? Uh, you may have heard some of the stories if you've not read the book. It goes back to the Middle Ages. It's a collection of these folk tales, colorful history and romance. Uh, medieval monks discovered that it was far more effective to teach ethics by stories than it was just giving lists of things to do and not to do. So the Romance of the Rose is a romance story. And it begins with a young man who's looking for love, uh, something common to youth. But what he finds is this, he has this dream, and he sees all of these young ladies who are hideous, hideously disfigured. And you know what disfigures them? He sees them not for their physical attributes, but he sees them for their moral virtues. He sees their greed. He sees in one uh, the personification of greed and selfishness. He sees in another someone who's prideful, someone who's uncontrolled and is prone to fits of anger and, and jealousy and, and, and all of the different vices. Rather than just seeing physical beauty, he sees virtue. I wonder what our lives would look like if that's the way we were seen. You know, cowardice is one of those things, it's a vice that we are so repulsed by, we're so ashamed of, to see in ourselves, we don't want to acknowledge it. And so we give it euphemisms, we call it by a different name. Right? I'm not afraid, I just don't want to do that. Right? I'm not afraid, I'm just busy. I'm not afraid, I just have these other commitments that have to be attended to. And what we do is we can so hide from our vice that we don't even recognize the power it's having over us. 
I want you to hear today that to obey God requires courage. Requires courage. And this message to this community that came through the prophet Isaiah is a message for us. That might kind of seem striking because this message was given to a nation that was in disarray some 1,600 years ago. A nation that had fallen apart. A nation that thought that their future was completely over and yet God said to them, do not be afraid. Notice why. He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, I have redeemed you and I have summoned you by name. You notice what uh, the Lord says through Isaiah. He doesn't say to this people, Shir Jeshuba. Right? That's Isaiah's son. I've called you by name. He doesn't say, hey Shlomo, listen, I'm calling you by name. He says Israel. <laughs> Jacob, who he changed his name to Israel. I'm calling you by name. And I think that opens a theological insight that we are meant to see in this. The people are called by that name that has created a covenant, a covenant relationship with God. A covenant is one of those things that indicates that we have an obligation, we have a role, we have a responsibility. And the call to not be afraid is a call to fulfill their part of the covenant. How do you know if God includes you right, in this promise? It's if you're a part of the covenant. Right? That's how we come, become part of Israel. Right? We've been adopted into the family through Jesus Christ. And so we can have confidence when we have professed faith in Jesus Christ that we are part of this covenant community that God calls to not be afraid. But notice, the Lord doesn't say, do not be afraid because there's no danger. Right? The Lord doesn't say, do not be afraid because I'm going to bring you up to the waters and then we're going to make a hard right turn. The Lord doesn't say, I'm going to bring you up to the fires and then we're going to turn around and go around them. The Lord says, when you pass through the waters, when you pass through the fires, I will be with you. You know, there are certain ways in which we can have a false kind of courage that I want to just acknowledge. And I'll commend to you to evaluate whether or not it might be something you could struggle with. One of the false kinds of courage is what my brother, the surgeon brother, calls courage of the non-combatant. And what he means about in his context is that there are certain people that want him to do surgery, right? but they don't have to deal with the consequences. Uh, perhaps you've been that way. Maybe you've been in the doctor's office and you said, doctor, why can't you just do the surgery? Just do this for my loved one. Well, my brother is one that once he opens up, that patient, he's with them. And he doesn't want to bring about their death through his surgery. So he has to bear that weight. Sometimes we can not adequately understand the danger involved and we cannot be subject to the consequences of what that danger might bring. And so we can speak very boldly. But it's not true courage. There's another kind of false courage that can come. Uh, Aristotle likes to just simply call this recklessness. 
right? It is the bravado that might act in the face of danger quite boldly. But it's a foolishness. Just because you run through a minefield doesn't mean you're brave. It might mean that you're foolish. I think of Jeremiah's contemporary, Hananiah, who told the people of Israel, there's nothing to fear. God's not going to let the enemy come and destroy you. He's whispered in my ear. Now, Hananiah didn't have that message from the Lord. And I want to remind you today, that is a, a practice that have, has always been a challenge to God's people, is that there are some people who will claim that God has spoken to them when God is not. And Hananiah was doing that. He was boldly and recklessly proclaiming that the people would prevail. What we see in Isaiah's prophecy is that there is danger ahead. But this call to courage is not simply a call to courage in any area of our life where we might need courage. Uh, we might extrapolate implications of that and apply them to our life. But for you today, I want to remind you of this. The call from Isaiah is a call to trust in God in the face of danger to fulfill our part of the covenant. Your part of being a, being a part of this relationship with God. And I want to very briefly mention three areas in your life where you need courage if you're going to fulfill this call from God. And they all start with a W, so you can remember. The first is witness. I told the children today, the Great Commission, which I read earlier, the call of the church is to be God's witnesses, to take the gospel to those who haven't heard and to share and while we partner with others to send missionaries to foreign lands, we also have the responsibility to share that hope with others. And that can be daunting. You know, sometimes the hindrance to our witnessing is because of our own confused idea of what that might look like. Uh, for some, their only real understanding of what that might look like is the kind of cold call salesmanship that you might see in a door-to-door -door salesman, which no one likes to do, and no one appreciates for the most part, someone just cold calling them. Now, I do have some wonderful friends who have come to faith because of a Southern Baptist knocking on their door. So God can use those methods. But that's not the only way to witness to our faith. One of the expressions I like to remind us of is this simple way of thinking about witness. Make a friend, be a friend, and bring a friend to Jesus. <laughs> be people who are looking to cultivate friendship with those who don't know the Lord. Not to do a fast one on them so that we can get them in the church, but to build friendship so that you can share the wonderful hope that is in you of who Jesus is. We are called to be witnesses. And it takes courage to do that. It takes courage to make yourself vulnerable to others. So worship. I mean witness is one. I've given away the third. The second W is in our walk. Our walk of faith requires courage. You know this Christian life is one of discipleship. There are various words we use to describe what discipleship is. Pursuit of holiness. 
I like the uh, image of, again, to use that friendship, to cultivate whole friendships. Last week, we talked about justice. Justice describes our attending to our duties and obligations. Are you walking in a way that is holy? In your home, as a husband, as a wife, uh, in your family, as a grandparent, as a son or daughter, as friends in the church. Now you might think to yourself, why does our Christian walk require courage? Boy, the reasons are, are endless, aren't they? It requires courage to confront our loved ones where there's something that's wrong in a relationship. And we cannot have healthy relationships that don't confront one another when we're in the wrong. It must be done in love, but it must be done. Another reason that we need courage in our walk and relationship with others is because we need courage to be people who can reconcile when we've done things wrong or when others have done wrong to us. I want to suggest that for many people who have been hurt by the church, what they don't realize is that it is cowardice that has caused them to pull back from the church because they lack the courage to walk with others. Don't lack courage. Do not be afraid. And it requires courage to worship God. Now this might be something that you think, surely not. Perhaps in certain areas of the world today, there are places where people are persecuted for gathering on Sundays. I think uh, throughout history, of course, there have been times of intense persecution. Polycarp, who was an early church bishop, he was 80, 86 years he'd been a Christian when he was brought before the tribunal. He was required to burn incense to a statue of Marcus Aurelius. That's all he had to do was to light a statue, bow his knee, and he would be delivered from certain death. But Polycarp stood before the tribunal and said, for 86 years the Lord has been faithful to me. I will not deny him now. How many of you have been faithful for 86 years? That moment of, of confrontation may still be ahead of you as it was for Polycarp. But it's not only in the face of that kind of persecution that we can face the temptation to bow our knees. It might be the temptation to not be able to have your children involved in certain activities. It might be that you miss out on certain things because of the life of commitment to the Lord. Don't bow your knees to Nebuchadnezzar. Be like Shadrach, Shadrach, and Abednego who would not bow their knees to the king. They were thrown into the fiery fire and they were delivered from the fire. But not all of God's people have been delivered in such a miraculous way. Polycarp wasn't. There is danger and there is hardship that stands before God's people. But you know what? Persecution and martyrdom has not increased the mortality rates of Christians. It stands at 100%. Each and every one of us is going to have to go through the waters, is going to have to go through the fire. But the Lord is with us. Take courage. God grant it. Amen.